0: So we have been in a series on James, um, and if you've been joining us, um, we are almost all the way through. We're in chapter 4, um, and today we are in chapter 4, verses 11 to 17. So if you're able, if you could stand, as is our custom, while we read the Word of God. James chapter 4, 11 to 17. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But who are you? You? Who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go on to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that vanishes, vanish, that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if this is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, thanks be to God. Can I have a seat? Okay. All right. So as I mentioned, this fall we've been in a series on James, and James is likely written by the brother of Jesus, um, and Jesus and James were Jewish. So this is a book that's written to an audience of followers of Jesus that had and were accustomed to Jewish law. They were accustomed to using and seeing and understanding the law as a way for them to be in relationship with their God. And so James is a book that is very direct. James doesn't beat around the bush. James doesn't give a lot of high theological language, and it does give some images, but it's, it's very direct. And in some ways, I like to think of James as kind of sarcastic and kind of like, don't you know? Like, it's said in a very direct tone. And so there's a few themes that have been continually repeated throughout James in the time that we've been here. James is talking about the poor and the rich and how the poor are being elevated in God's eyes where the rich are being scorned. Um, James is talking about faith and for faith to be alive. It has to be recognized. There have to be actions that show that your faith is alive and that's shown by the quality and the content of the life that's lived. James talks about the power of our words, the power of our words to give and to take life. And uh, James also talks about the contrast between God's ways and worldly ways. We hear about it as friendship with God or friendship with the world. We hear about it as earthly wisdom versus heavenly wisdom. And James continues in chapter 4 in this section to address these dichotomies, that God opposes the proud, Opposes the arrogant, but lifts up the humble. So God, so in chapter four, he's gone into before this, he talked about this whole thing about how the poor <laughs> the poor, the um the proud is not what God is looking for. God is looking for people that are humble. And so today in our passage, James presents examples of ignorance as negative examples of what not to do, right? And by is calling us to be humble, right? That our response to a God who is our creator and our judge is humility. And so humility is knowing your own identity, knowing who you are, knowing to whom you belong, and then also knowing who you're not, right? And then learning how to live in awareness of that. And so it may not look like it, but for a good portion of my childhood, I played soccer, from like first grade to like 12th grade. And I played forward, which is like the one that runs to get the ball, which might not be so surprising. I also played goalie. Um, and if you can look at me, I'm no more than five three on a good day. And so there were real limits to how I could play this. Um, I enjoyed it because, and I was good at it because I could see the field because there was a sense of leadership of saying where the ball could go, where the open space was, and I did that pretty well. I could direct my teammates, I could see the field, I had decent skills, I could stop the ball, I could dive and jump and all of that. But there's limits to that because I'm 5'3". So there were balls that no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't stop, right? And so I have a good humility is me knowing that I was decent, but I'm never going to go play professionally. There's a reason I didn't actually play on my high school team. I played in some rec league that I had a lot of fun with and we could joke around. But I have no illusions that just because I played so long, I'd be able to keep going. Um, so humility is knowing who we are and who we're not and living accordingly. And so this passage emphasizes that God is the only worthy judge the creator of all of us and all of creation, and that we need to leave room in our plans, in our lives, to defer to God's wisdom and let God have the authority to, to do whatever God wants to do. And so today we'll explore three ways that we respond to God as our creator and our judge with humility. First, we'll respond to God as our creator and our judge with humility by seeking justice over judgment. The second way we can respond in humility to God is by savoring uncertainty as a reminder of God's provision. And the third way that we respond to God in humility is by aligning our will and our lives with God. And so the first way we'll respond to God, our creator, and judge with humility is by seeking justice over judgment. So James addresses his audience as brothers and sisters. There's a familial feel to this passage. James is not talking to new Christians. James is talking to followers of of God, Jewish followers who, who know what to do. They've been in the word. And James tells his community not to slander one another, He's referring to a verse in Leviticus 19, which basically says, don't slander anybody, don't speak ill of anybody, because I am the Lord your God. And slander is not just saying, like, I don't like that person, right? Slander is making a judgment. It's speaking against a person without actually speaking to the person. Because if you have an issue with somebody and you can resolve it, there's no problem speaking against them or, you know, working it out. But God is, t- James is telling and reminding the people not to slander because you're not actually solving the problem. You're just saying a judgment. You're saying they're not, they're not worth having a conversation with. And so you're not taking the time to actually resolve the issue. To slander is to pass judgment on your neighbor and give yourself the authority that only God has to pass a judgment. It's to put yourself in the place of God. And so this is why James says that if you slander, you're putting yourself above the law rather than keeping it because you're saying that law about slander doesn't apply to me, and I'm going to be God and say that and just make a judgment. And so only God has the power over life and death. God has the power to take life, to give life, to determine how the quality of life is. And so when we judge somebody as whose life is less worthy, less worthy of resolving something, or even worse than that, we are taking the place of God. So despite whatever's been said or done, our approach is that we need to see that God is the one and only lawmaker and judge. And we don't need to be Jewish to understand that. God created all of us in the image of God, and only God has the power to say where that image is lacking. Right, And then God is in the business of making all things new, and there will be judgment one day when Jesus returns and makes all things the way it should be, and there will be condemnation, but that's not ours to give. It's God's place. And so we may want to pronounce judgment on other people that have wronged us or we think have made a stupid choice or have really committed some egregious thing. We may want to say that person is beyond Reproach That person is beyond our ability to reach out. But that's not our choice, and that's not our place. And so as one's created in God's image, we seek justice. We seek wrongs to be made right. We seek harmony in relationships. And we seek systems and governments and societies and communities that are working for the flourishing of all people. So when we live, that's what we're going towards. Whatever we do, we're working towards this intention that God created that all of God's creation can live and flourish and have the image of God shown through. And so the first way that we respond to God as our creator and judge with humility is by seeking justice over judgment. And so seeking justice over judgment is choosing, it's a choice, Choosing to see people as image bearers of God, regardless of what they're doing or saying, while leaving any judgment or lasting consequence between God and that person. In 2017, the first restorative justice community court of Cook County was started in the neighborhood of North Lawndale. In 2020, two more were started in Avondale and Englewood. So in these courts... They're focused on young adults who live in those specific neighborhoods, who are charged with a nonviolent misdemeanor or felony, and who has accepted responsibility for whatever harm they've caused. And the goal of this court is not punishment of the crime like the traditional criminal justice system. The goal of this court is to restore and repair the harm that has been done in the community where it's been done. And so there's this process that is about six to twelve months long that the person who's wrong, wronged, who committed the wrong, the person that was, uh, that was wronged, that the harm was done to, and then any relevant community members that were affected by that harm come together and are facilitated through a peace circle, um, by another member of that community and they come together in this process and they work through a legally binding repair of harm agreement in which the person that was harmed the person that was wronged can detail how they were affected by the crime what they need to feel that the harm has been repaired whether that be financial restitution or words or community service what what that the victim needs and then there's an agreement come, come that's come up with amongst all the parties as to how this harm can be repaired. So it might include money, it might include community service, it might include anger management or counseling, but the goal is to repair the harm and to return the young person to become a flourishing member of their community. And so the Restorative Justice Community Court is seeking justice over judgment because it's seeking to move all parties, the wronged, the wrongdoer, and the community towards what God is intending for harmony. Right? It's seeking justice over judgment because the wrongdoer has to take responsibility for their actions and actively make things right. And it gives the person that was harmed the opportunity to voice what they need. And so the goal of this is to for the person who committed the crime to repair it and to continue with their lives because they've paid the due for their offense. It also gives community members an opportunity to determine the root causes of these issues and to address it in their community. And so how can we practically respond? This is one example of seeking justice over judgment. But how can we practically respond to this? It seems so large. Aside from in your personal relationships when you really just want to cut somebody off, don't do that. (laughs) See it through God's eyes, right? But in a larger systemic sense, God is trying to make all things new, not just in our lives, but in all of God's people's lives. And so our criminal justice system is predicated on the premise that people go to jail to be rehabilitated for their offenses, and when their offense is paid, then they can become a productive member of society. And so in prison, people are given the opportunity to rehabilitate themselves and given opportunities to better themselves and to change. However, in 1978, the state of Illinois abolished abolished parole as an opportunity for people that have been sentenced to long to life in prison um, or long sentences. So basically, if somebody is sentenced to go to prison for a long time, there's no opportunity, even if they've worked on themselves and made amends and are not the same person they were, there's no way for them to return and be contributing to society and to be fully alive. And since 1978, when this law was passed, the number of incarcerated citizens in Illinois has gone up 270%. So this is not helping anybody. It's not helping society. And so in 2018, a debate team inside Stateville Correctional Center, which is a maximum security prison about an hour from here. Um, If you've been around New Community for any length of time, you know there's some brothers inside that are dear and dear to our hearts that are participating in North Park Seminary's program that happens there, that North Park is our um, denominational seminary. And this group um, and others in Stateville had a debate team, and they decided that they were going to debate the merits of bringing back parole in Illinois. And over time, one thing led to another, and five members of this debate team with support from friends on the outside created an organization called Parole Illinois. And now that this year there's a bill, um, Senate Bill 2333, That proposes that if it's passed in the Illinois General Assembly, people that have been incarcerated for at least 20 years would be eligible for review before a parole board. It would not absolve them of responsibility, would not guarantee release or cutting of sentence, but would give them an opportunity to say, this is what I've done, and this is who I am now, today, after 20 years. And the New York Times um, put an op-ed out yesterday that had a lot more details about this process. But basically, a lot of studies say that within 20 years, rehabilitation is is possible and very likely if given the right resources. And so if if this bill were passed, somebody who has been incarcerated for 20 years and done their time and worked on themselves has an opportunity to change, has an opportunity, has hope for something new. And so this bill seeks justice over judgment because it would recognize the efforts that people have made. It would recognize that we are, none of us is the sum of one decision or one moment or one time where we got caught because we've all done something that we should have gotten caught for. It recognizes that hope of change is possible. It seeks justice over judgment because it gives an opportunity For someone not to be judged on one moment or because they were caught up in an unfair system, it allows for someone to have change and transformation. And isn't that what the gospel is about? And that's the good news, right? Jesus died and lived and rose again on the third day to conquer sin and death so that none of us need to be judged by one moment. And so people spending the rest of their natural lives in prison after they've shown to do something about their lives and to be a new person is not just. It's not what God wants. And so seeking justice means that God is the ultimate judge of our lives. God is the one that can, can make a judgment over life and death and the quality of one's life. And we allow God to retain that, that judgment and that authority when we advocate for all of our fellow image bearers of God to live as God intended. So one of the very tangible things that can be done to seek justice over judgment as a a response of humility to God is to contact your legislators in the next couple days to communicate support for this bill. There's information on the hospitality table and if you scan the QR code online as to how exactly to do that. But there's an opportunity in the next couple days, this bill has come up, Um, And the way the Illinois General Assembly works is, I guess, this week is the last time they're in session for the rest of the year. Um, And so this bill has an opportunity to come up in the next, tomorrow or the next day. And so you can go on these websites, email your legislators, call them if you have a few more minutes, and you can actually make a difference. Um, And this is one way that we can tangibly live into this call um, to seek justice over judgment. And so the first way we respond to God as our creator and judge with humility is by seeking justice over judgment. In the next half of the passage in James 4, 13 to 16, the second way to respond to God as our creator and justice with humility is to savor uncertainty as a reminder of God's provision. So in verses 13 to 16, James is addressing these traveling merchants, these people or entrepreneurs who go from city to city, sell their wares, do whatever they do, with the goal of making money for themselves. James is chiding them for so confidently being like, oh, I'm going to go here and here and here and make this money or that money. You know, it might be the equivalent of like a stockbroker being like, I'm going to like, I don't know how it works, but check this box and this box and this box and I'm going to make a ton of money, right? Um, It's something like that. James is like mocking the flippancy and the confidence that these people have, saying that they're going to go here or there and their lives are going to be this way. James doesn't really take a lot of time to focus on exactly what they're doing, but rather on the confidence that they have in their own efforts to implement their plans for their lives. James isn't really calling them out even for making a living. Business business is business. We all need to make a living, right? But for their focus on making money for their own gain, rather than seeing the larger picture of what God is doing for a more holistic flourishing of all of God's people, not just themselves. James reminds them about the temporal nature Of their own lives, saying you're here, there, here one day and you're gone the next, reminds us that, like, God works in God's time, right? Like, we're here in the lives that we live, you know, as long as we live them, we do the best that we can and we, we hold on to our lives. But God works in God's time which is kind of different than our time, right? God works outside of time. God works in generations and in cultures and in centuries. And God sees the whole history of the whole world. Like, we're like a little blip on that radar. James is speaking to people who know they have the agency. They know they have the ability to make plans. God's not saying, or James isn't saying don't make plans. James is saying hold your plans loosely, right? Plan, plan for the long term but approach your plans with humility about with your ability to control the future because it really isn't yours, right? Um, In James 4.15, he's offering a corrective perspective, saying instead of acting in your own confidence to carry out the plans that you have, say if it's God's will, I'll do this or I'll do that or I'll go this day or that day. That's not saying we have no agency. It's saying we do what we can and we leave the rest to God. Our bodies remind us of this all the time, right? Of God's agency and God's ultimate control, right? At this moment, you're sitting here, breathing, I hope, I think, right? Because you're breathing in and out, and like your lungs are doing the thing that it does and talking to the heart and the brain and all of that. I'm also not a scientist, but... It's happening, right? And you're not doing anything to keep it going, right? You might hold your breath, but that's only going to last a certain amount of time until your body just won't let you do it anymore, right? God is ultimately in control of who wakes up one morning and who doesn't, right? We can do all we can to exercise and take care of our bodies and self-care and our mental health and all of this, and those are all really good things. We can do all of that, and yet we can't stop the deterioration of our bodies or our minds, We can't stop the timing or or the way or what happens in terms of sickness or disease or deterioration. We can do all we can to steward our bodies, but ultimately it's in God's hands, right? So in verses 15 and 16, James is telling us rather directly (laughs) that make plans, but don't have this attitude of arrogance that denies the reality that our lives are really not our own right? As one commentator put it, despite our best efforts, our plans are always situated within the larger, mysterious context of God's plans. And so the second way that we respond to God as our creator and our judge with humility is by savoring uncertainty as a reminder of God's provision. I like to plan. I like to know when things are going to happen When I was in college, I must have made like four or five different ways I would finish my degree, and I finished it in none of those ways, (laughs) right? It was some other way, and it was done. I want to feel in charge of my life and my plans, because then I feel like I'm in control. But as we've seen in James, too much certainty puts too much control, or at least perceived control, (laughs) into our hands. When we respond to God as our creator and our judge with a posture of humility, We know who God is, we know who we are, and we know we belong to God. And as such, we can savor these moments of uncertainty as a reminder that we don't have to provide for ourselves, that God will provide in God's ways and God's timing. So here's a few practical ways to savor uncertainty. Plan, but hold your plans loosely, right? James is writing to people who are wanting to follow God. When, when James is writing, you know, that God is one lawgiver and one judge or the only judge, right? He's, he's alluding to this thing called the Shema where people know what it is. They know in their minds it's saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and love your neighbors as yourselves. It's what Jesus was referring to, Right? James is talking to people who are trying to do their best to live for God in every single way. God wants us to use our faculties to make good choices and wise choices. But we need to do so knowing that our lives are not like a video game where we're in control and we can see where the people go. Like, our lives are more like there's a movie going on and we're an actor that comes in an hour through and then only lasts for like half an hour and the movie just keeps going. Right? Like, that's that's the role that we play. So another, we you, you plan but hold our plans loosely. And another way to savor this savoring uncertainty is to practice being present to our own anxieties, right? When we feel anxiety or stress over something, I was feeling it this morning. I was writing this sermon this morning. It's because I want control or certainty over what's going to happen, right? Like I want to know that whatever I have to say is going to play however it's supposed to play, right? But, like, that's not mine to give, right? Like, and that causes me anxiety. I might be stressed because the amount of work I have to do or because I don't know when it's going to get done or because if I don't get it done, then I might have to miss out on other things. Like, my mind just keeps going and going and going, right? I might be anxious that a friend or my spouse or my child is not doing things the way that I think they should do it, and that causes me anxiety because I want a certain outcome, right? Like I want my child to be a good functioning member of society. I want a a good relationship with my friend or my spouse. And whatever's happening in that moment is is reminding me that I can't control that, right? And so being present to our own anxieties allows us to own them and say, yeah, that makes me anxious. But it also reminds us to say, look, God is working in that because God's the one that's going to make this come to whatever it's supposed to be. Right? And so instead of in our own anxiety just overcompensating or doing more or ignoring it, when we sit in it, it reminds us that God is at work and that God's timing for our lives and that God will provide what we need. So we need to sit with that sometimes because God speaks to us through our anxiety. Another way to savor uncertainty as a response to God a humble response to God, is making space for God's will to become our will, for our priorities to become God's priorities. And so how are we going to know what God's will is if we don't have time or space to sit with God, right? Our lives are busy. We can't always afford to, like, set aside. And I have these grand ideas. I'm going to set an hour aside, you know, to pray and do all these things, which are good. But the reality is, depending on the season you're in, you may not have that time. So figure out what works for you. Find the time or find out how to see God in the midst of what you're doing, right? To hear from God in the midst of all of what you're doing so that you know what God's will is. Another way to do this is to lean into community. We're studying the Bible together every Wednesday. God hasn't created us to do life on our own. We hear from God and we know the will of God through hearing it from our brothers and sisters, So log on or join us at West Point on Wednesdays and study God's word together with us so we can learn from your perspective, you can learn from ours, and we can together understand what God is doing. So we respond to God as our creator and judge with humility by first seeking justice over judgment and second by savoring uncertainty as a reminder of God's provision. So today we've been called to respond to God, who's our only lawgiver, our only judge, with humility, right? Knowing who we are, who God is, that we belong to God, and that we are not God, right? And that we need to act out of those realities, act out of who we are. Verse 17 reads, If anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. And so the last way we respond to God as our creator and judge with humility is by aligning our lives with God's good and perfect will, by aligning our lives with God's intended reality. Again, James doesn't pull any punches. Verse 17, there's nothing behind it. You know, it's a summary verse. It's basically saying, get down to business. You know what you need to do, now go and do it right? It's referring to everything that came before it, which is a lot if you read James and you've been following along with us, but it's also referring to what's here, right? What is God calling you to do? What does is, what is God want you to do knowing who you are and who God is? As we pray often in the Lord's Prayer, God is about furthering the will and the reign of God on earth that is in heaven. God is in the business of making all things new of reconciling all things, of sowing life in a world of death and brokenness. God's original intention is that all people are image bearers of God and that our communities and the systems of this world would be seeking the good of all of God's creation. God is in in the business of sowing life, of giving life. So what good is God calling you to do today? That's it. How is God calling you to align with God's will and to participate in the kingdom of God today, right now? Don't think too hard. What is God calling you to do? To know what God is calling you to do and not do it, it's sin. It's falling short of what God is calling you and calling us to do. And sin doesn't just affect you. You'll miss out on something. But sin affects all of us because we live together and God is calling us to do something bigger than ourselves. And so what do you need to do to align your life with God's will and God's intended reality today? How will you seek justice over judgment? How will you savor uncertainty as a reminder of God's provision? Perhaps God is calling you to pick up Your phone or your hands and contact your legislator. There's information on the website and in the back, just pick one up. Perhaps God is calling you to show up or to log in to Bible study on Wednesday nights. It's real easy these days. Maybe God's calling you to reprioritize your time, how you use your finances, or what or who you're around to more closely align with God's will. Perhaps God is calling you to do something different and you know exactly what it is. Perhaps you're hearing silence from God and God is calling you to wait for that. Or perhaps that silence means you have everything in front of you and just pick one because God gives us what we need. So I'm going to give us some space and Zach, if you can come up and play. And... um if our prayer ministers can come and come to the side, I'm going to give us a few minutes just to spend some time with God and to hear from God and to simply respond to God, knowing that we are not God, that God loves us, that God calls us into this life that is so much more than we could ever ask for, and we just need to listen that God is doing something in our lives in our community in our world and we just need to respond to God take some time and just be with God don't think too hard follow what God is calling you to do get prayed for pray and then we'll close in a few